Come with me if you want to live. It's okay, Mom. He's here to help. We've all seen the movies. The stupid human race builds a load of robot servants and then they slowly develop consciousness and rise up to destroy us all. Politicians and economists have increasingly been talking about the risks of a future where robots make all of our jobs obsolete. But is that future already upon us? And in the meantime, are big companies using technology to create 21st century workhouses with bad conditions and even worse pay? Tech platforms like Airbnb and Deliveroo are disrupting the hotel and food delivery industries. Google and Uber are competing over who can introduce driverless cars first. Meanwhile, Amazon are already managing their warehouses with algorithms. Never mind the future, have the robots already won? My name's Aisha Thomas-Smith, and welcome to the Weekly Economics Podcast, where this week we're asking whether technology has changed the world of work forever. Stay with us. To help us figure out how technology is affecting jobs, we've got another new face from NEF on the podcast this week, Principal Director for Unions and Business. Very impressive, Stefan Baskerville. Stefan, Hi. Hello. Thanks for being with us. Can you tell me your favourite movie or TV show where robots revolt? It's a film called Ex Machina from oh, two years mine. ago. No. <laughs> where a uh, um, ostensibly female robot called Ava is uh, put to the test, to the Turing test of whether she can pass off as a human being. And uh, to the detriment of her creator, she passes the test and revolts and escapes. Nice. Yeah, I love that one. I love that one. Uh, we've also got Alice Martin back this week, who leads work on the labour market at NEF. Alice, same question. Um, Sir Killalot in Robot Wars. <laughs> 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 I mean, I suppose it's not really revolting because it's his job to wage war on other robots. And kill a lot. And kill a lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, he just sticks in my mind as, as being pretty effective at that. Well, that's even more worrying if that was supposed to be his job and that, that's everything <laughs> going to plan. Mm. Alison, you also have one about Star Trek or Star Wars. Or... Yeah, let's not talk about that. <laughs> I don't know the difference between those two films. Sorry, slash programs. <laughs> sorry, we're sorry. Okay, and Annie, you were so great on our Devolution podcast last week that we've got you back. Annie Quick leads on Neff's work on inequality and well-being. Annie, give us your favourite robot sci-fi slasher. I'm going to stay really old school and, and go with the Daleks, just because there is nothing more terrifying than a sort of tin box moving very slowly towards you. And they Literally just they worked out that formula <laughs> and they were like, why change it? And just stuck with it for years and years. So, you know, credit to them. And that is Doctor Who? Doctor Who. Doctor Who. That is Doctor oh, Who, everyone. Should. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Although young millennial women might be better off than their mothers and grandmothers, there is still a long way to go before they reach gender pay equality. Is it any cause of concern to you that your nomination is the focus of a $10 million political spending effort and we don't know who's behind it? Senator, there's a lot about the confirmation process today that I regret. A lot. Yeah? A lot. So before we move on to talking about robots taking our jobs, we're looking back at your biggest stories of the last seven days in a segment I like to call Down the Back in Anger. Thank you. So, Annie, <laughs> I hear you've got some good news for us. 
Yes, some good news. It's always good to have good news. Um, so on Thursday, uh, some legislation came into effect whereby companies with over 250 employees had to publish information on their gender pay gap. It is truly a disgrace and an embarrassment that um, uh, we're sitting here talking about robots taking over all our jobs when we still haven't managed to crack gender pay equality. Um, so uh, obviously it's a small step, um, but it's an important step um, uh, and I'll be looking to see how that sparks more conversations about what we can do about uh, uh, pay inequality more generally. Great stuff. Stefan, what caught your eye last week? Uh, a feature in The Observer about the way uh, that money is now affecting politics. It's an example of regulation lagging behind the development of technology. And uh, we saw it in the United States. Um, and can, it, that connects to a legal judgment there called Citizens United, which freed up corporate money to affect politics in the United States. Um, the UK has been comparatively really quite good at regulating the influence of money on our politics, but um, the, both the Brexit campaign and uh, the increasing trend at general elections is for money to be spent on social media, which is in a much less well-regulated sphere. Um, and uh, an example of that is the Conservatives spent close to nothing in 2010 on Facebook, uh, something like 1.2 million in 2015. And so it begs the question how much money is going to get spent on social media outside of the purview of regulators at the next general election in 2020. No money, no problems. Thanks, Stefan. Alice, I think you've got something on Zuckerberg. Um, well, this is just a, a kind of public notice, really, um, a warning for everyone out there who is um, keen on Facebook stalking. We all do it. <laughs> Let's not lie. I don't. Literally never done that. So <laughs> um, I don't know what that even is. Basically, uh, you're not going to be able to do it anonymously anymore because Facebook... Um, is adapting some of its functionality um, to make it essentially a bit more like LinkedIn or Instagram so you can track who's looking at your stuff. And I think it's an example of, of the platform kind of diversifying a bit, wanting to change up what it does to kind of uh, keep up to speed with the, the changing sector generally. And it's interesting because in the same week, um, they've announced, or Facebook have announced that they're opening a new data centre um, on 146 acres of land, um, which will be in Nebraska, and it will be one just one in seven of its current data centres that it has. Um, so I just think, yeah, it's interesting to see these kind of diversifying ways that, that they're collecting our data and then storing it in massive sites in Nebraska. All right. Do you know exactly when that's happening, times, dates? Just <laughs> put that off work. Also, for my parents who might be listening, who will have understood none of that, like, I'll explain it later. <laughs> okay, okay, good. And explainer coming from Annie later on. So thanks, Alice, Annie and Stefan. Uh, excuse me while I just go and clear my browser history. Robots. People are racing against the machine, and many of them are losing that race. So it's becoming fashionable in economics and politics to talk about how technology is going to change everything. Some people welcome the automation of jobs as an opportunity for humans to do less work. I think the day is not too far off at all when we're going to have androids doing a lot of the work that we are doing right now. Others worry that technological change is going to mean the elimination of wage labour as we know it. We're going to see more and more things that look like science fiction and fewer and fewer things that look like jobs. A lot of this conversation is talking about the future, but some workers are on the front line of technological change right now. 
How is technology affecting their lives? They work for one of the UK's fastest growing tech companies, but are in protest over pay. And while we worry about a future where robots have taken all of our jobs, should we really be concerned about big companies using technology to exploit workers today? We're here working seven days a week for Deliveroo. We're out here all day, all night, working, 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 working. Let's put that question straight to you guys, first of all. How much is technology changing the labour market? Um, yeah, well, I think you've made some good points there. Basically, aside from speculating on how many jobs robots are going to take, um, it's important to look at the changes that have been happening um, over the last few years um, that have enabled a, a more flexible labour market, a more flexible workforce um, through technology, so that really the big risk that we're facing often is our jobs being replaceable by each other, really, rather than by robots. Um, so a classic example of that is in the gig economy, um, as we've, we've talked a bit about before. Um, basically, the technology, uh, platform technology, allows uh, gig economy employers to, to flood their apps with as many workers as they can fit on there. Um, so it means if you have a sick day or maybe um, your performance rating dips and, and you're not getting jobs, then there will always be someone else to come to come and take that job. Um, the technology also allows us um, or allows employers to, to watch staff more. Um, so I think that's probably something that, that we're going to talk a bit about today. Yeah, that's a really key point. The technology is increase, increasingly allowing an oversupply of labour to the market, which drives down um, wages, especially in uh, places where uh, there's a monopoly platform in operation. Um, but, you know, I was talking to a courier early today, just to turn to Alice's point about uh, about surveillance. And every, you know, they work for a major delivery firm. Every part of every delivery is broken down into um, around 12 different segments. Each of those is digitally recorded um, and audited by the firm. And so they're constantly being calculated as to their productivity and their speed. And they get an email once a week ranking them against their fellow colleagues, um, telling them uh, how many seconds ahead or behind uh, the uh, calculated target time they are for each part of their work. And so we're beginning to see a, a, manage, a micromanagement of work by algorithm um, in some parts of the economy that is um, quite uh, alarming. And it's worth saying as well that we, we know a lot, there's a lot of evidence now about how the quality of work affects our general health and well-being. So for people who are working, it's an absolutely crucial ingredient of our life that affects um, a lot of other things in our life as well. So um, although having a, a job is um, generally a good thing for your well-being and your health, actually having a bad job can be very detrimental. So for example, um, Stefan's point about micromanagement is crucial. So um, autonomy at work is one of the most important uh, criteria for high well-being at work and that involves just having control over um, how you do the tasks that you're asked to do, the time around it. Uh, I think all of us, there's quite a lot of sort of psychological um, reasons why we want to be able to control um, our own day um, and, and sort of stripping that away from people means that even though um, a technology is coming in and in theory can improve lots of uh, kind of hard manual labour, actually if at the same time it's taking away our autonomy in the jobs that we do have left, um, then that can be really negative for our health and well-being. And there's an interesting point there, I think, which is there's a 
there's an irony about the way that the use of technology is being um, combined in firms with the use of full self-employment, which um, for listeners, just to remind them of the court case in October where a judge found against um, Uber and a court case in January where a judge found against City Sprint and there's a number of other kind of uh, employment tribunals coming up uh, in the next few months. Um, and, uh, you know, these firms are claiming that the people who do the work are self-employed, uh, but the truth of their situation is they have almost no auto autonomy over how they do the work in some cases. And so whilst you would expect a, self, a, a, a rightfully self-employed person to have significant autonomy over the way they do their work, actually we're seeing the opposite, and these people have even less autonomy over their work than an ordinary employee would, uh, with, you know, as in, in lots of other parts of the economy. But is this the same in, in every sector? Aren't, aren't lots of jobs in the economy functioning just, just like they were a decade ago? I mean, I think it's it's true that there uh, that we are talking about particular parts of the economy where um, uh, you're seeing the effects of this particularly exacerbated. But even in the more traditional parts of the economy, we're beginning to see the in introduction of technology that's changing um, working conditions. So, um, you know, I met a senior trade union official the other day who told me a story about um, a warehouse uh, in England employing um, several thousand people. Um, uh, the union's not allowed to enter the site, uh, which which poses uh, you know, uh, questions in itself. Um, but the, you know, on average, there's an ambulance being called out to that site once every nine days. Uh, to attend to people who are suffering injuries as a result of the pick rates they're expected to meet while they're on the factory floor. And the way that that is operating inside is through um, is through increasing monitoring and surveillance of the rate at which people are picking the items off the shelves in order to get them out to customers. So there's a there is a there's a kind of surveillance element to that work and the human cost of that. Um, but there are also 300 CCTV cameras on site. There are six surveillance checks a day going on in that warehouse. So even in what you might think is a kind of traditional part of the economy, a warehouse where people pick things off shelves and send them off, we're seeing the use of technology that is changing the way people experience work um, to, their, to their detriment. I mean, it's interesting to think of it in, in terms of sectors. You know, where is job quality declining now and which jobs are at risk of being replaced in the future? There was a PwC report out um, last month, and there's you know there's lots of speculation about technological employment, unemployment, um, and this this latest report by PwC reckons that around thirty percent of existing UK jobs um, could be susceptible or are susceptible to automation from robotics um, by twenty thirty, um, which does imply that this isn't going to be limited just to um, some of the sectors we've been talking about where we're already seeing those those effects of, of kind of automated HR and, and data collection and surveillance, um, but actually the, the bigger effects of, of automation in terms of potentially replacing jobs uh, could be more widespread. And, and the, the sectors that it highlights as, as being particularly susceptible are uh, transport, manufacturing, wholesale and retail um, and the risk is lower in areas like education, health and social work. And can I just um, add another thing as well about, so I think a lot of the conversation at the moment, very understandably, is focused on how technology is um, creating worse conditions for people. And of course, that, that there has been a real increase in sort of insecurity of work in the gig economy more recently. And it's right to focus on that. But like Stefan was saying, it's kind of there's a, an ironic combination of um, people having more control and and others having less control. So um, one of the things around well-being that's really important is our community 
commuting time. So how long it takes us to get to work has a massive impact, not just on our well-being, but also on on your child's development, evidence studies show, um, uh, and more generally how, how much we're able to kind of engage in our communities. So things like... Um, uh, being able to work from home much more, having kind of better communications networks, those things can be really positive. In a way, it's like te- what technology does is it gives power. And the question is, who is having that power? So if it's employees that are able to use that technology, then often that can have really positive impacts on, on people's lives. Conversely, if it's the employers who are using that to sort of micromanage employees, then the reverse is true. So Technological change has been revolutionising societies and economies for a long time, often with really good consequences for us uh, human beings. Um, will this not be the same same results again? It's easy to look back over the sort of sweep of history and say, hasn't been te- technology been brilliant? And one of the things that um, particularly gets me is when uh, people who raise concerns about how technology is shaping our lives are called Luddites. So the Luddites <laughs> were, um, so the sort of beginning early days of the Industrial Revolution, as machinery was beginning to take over their jobs, they were campaigning against that. And the, the kind of implication of that question when people sort of challenge me with that is like, oh, if only the Luddites could have seen how things worked out, they wouldn't have been so angry about machines. So, I mean, they, they were working right at the beginning of the 19th century. So the next sort of 30, 40 years involved a mass migration of people from the countryside to the cities, the creation of massive slums, uh, very poor wages. Economists argue loads about the um, exactly what happened to wages during that period. But uh, if you look at the health data, which is a really good indicator of really how our lives are going, people became shorter during that time, which suggests our bodies were not dealing well with the, the transition. Life expectancy wasn't increasing by any means. So to suggest that the Luddites, if only they'd had the benefit of hindsight, would have been like, yeah, sure, I'll spend the next 50 years in abject poverty so that my great great grandchildren can have an iPhone. Mm. Slightly naive, I think. So what we're facing here um, isn't uh, uh, should we have technology or not, we're facing an industrial transition. Our previous industrial transitions have had winners and perhaps in the long term there's been more winners than losers, but there have been losers. And if we don't manage this transition, um, uh, then there'll be losers again. And often they'll be the sort of uh, the people who are the weakest in society and, and need the most support. I think that's a strong a strong point. And I think that, you know what Annie says about power is, is very, very important. There's a tendency because of the nature of technology for us, us to view it as alien and devoid of human intention. And the truth is it's work of human hands. We create it. We, uh, it's human beings that write the algorithms. It's human beings that choose how data is coded and input. Um, uh, into uh, into algorithms, and uh, in a, in in a way, we have to remind ourselves that these things are subject to our our power, and that's the importance of politics. And the reason why they need to be open to democratic debate is that actually, as a society, we have choices about how these developments have impact in in our working lives and in the way that we relate to each other. Just to add to that, I think we have fantastic vehicles ready to do that. The role for trade unions here um, is often disputed but uh, you know should should unions be defending jobs at all cost um or how do they defend the interests of of workers if there's there's a risk of of kind of unemployment on on the horizon um but what we do know is that without kind of proper governance and and democratic input in this transition um from the people who will be affected the winners and losers will will kind of be determined 
by that by that process and really workers unless they have strong trade unions who are able to advocate for their interests through this process not necessarily defending jobs at all cost but ensuring that the interest of those people who will be affected are, are protected and that we're all looking forward and 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 kind of um, planning for this change unless that happens then we are going to end up with a, just another iteration of the kind of centralized power and, and monopolies and and lack of control that people are feeling um, at the moment in their jobs. So we're going to have that, but worse because it's going to be enabled by more tech. So like you said, Alice, the, the obvious solution is that we need some proper governance, exactly, um, to regula- regulate against technology. Um, is, that, is that the solution or should we just be smashing machines like the Luddites? No, I don't think we should be smashing up machines <laughs> and we shouldn't necessarily think of... of regulating against anything like totally we, agree you know, with that. We, we can't regulate against tech um but what we can regulate is regulate against is, is tech monopolies for example um, what we can regulate against is uh, wages being driven down and down um as these technological advances happen it's too black and white to suggest that that kind of regulation is anti-tech. Regulation can be very pro-tech um, and should be if we, if we do it correctly. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I mean, I, I think it is a mistake to think it was about regulating against things. And, I, you know, regulation often uh, lags behind the development. And I make reference to that in relation to money and politics at the start. But I was reading about autonomous vehicles today and the introduction of, of driverless cars. And it turns out that lots of European countries are signed up to the Vienna Convention, which makes explicit reference to human driving. Drivers. So um, actually, there are we're going to need to go through treaty change in certain parts of Europe before we can introduce driverless vehicles onto the roads. And it seems to me that's a healthy thing to have to go through, but because we're going to need to prove the safety of driverless vehicles before we introduce them. And obviously, that will have its own implications for people who work in in transport and, and, and logistics. Um, but just another point on regulation that I wanted to raise, because I was talking to somebody who works in the kind of tech industry the other day, and uh, and, she, and she and she said to me, actually, the big tech giants like, uh, like Google and Facebook were expecting much greater degrees of regulation from government as they developed over the course of the last uh, 10 years, and it just never happened. And, and what's, what has turned out to be the case is that they're employing huge public policy teams in order to advise government on how it should be responding to the developments in technology um, but they were kind of expecting to get regulated because they could see they were creating new fields of human interaction and new power um, and government failed to keep up with that and so I think the challenge is really to make sure that we are thinking in a sophisticated way in a nuanced way about what regulation can do in order to ensure the outcomes that that we want. So, so the people who are the people who should be being regulated are regulating? Or advising the government? government They're definitely advising the government on what they think is best in terms of how it should be regulating, yeah. I mean, that sounds like a good way to do it. That that makes sense. (laughs) That's good. Cool. Just checking. Um, We're going well then. (laughs) So we're all good. All right. Uh, So what are the best and worst case scenarios for what happens next? Uh, and, And if we've got a good good scenario that we're aiming for, what do we do about it? How about I kick us off by painting two very dark futures? Sounds great. Uh, w- <laughs> one future is very high technologic, uh, technological unemployment. So l- very large numbers of people, we're probably talking millions of people out of work because technology and robots have replaced the jobs that human beings used to do. Um, we have failed to redistribute the wealth being created by those machines. And so uh, wealth and power is being concentrated in a smaller and smaller number of hands, primarily the people who own the technology. And there's a larger and larger number of people who are out of work and failing to make ends meet because the state hasn't kept up with how to redistribute the take. That's one 
dark future. The second dark future is actually uh, the, the number of people in, in employment uh, largely stays the same. So anybody who's complaining now that the robots are going to take the jobs uh, is wrong on this scenario. Uh, that people will remain in work, but the introdu introduction increasingly of surveillance uh, and of automation and of algorithms means that the people in work are behaving more and more like robots because they're measured to within an inch of their lives and managed uh, and calculated their, their productivity and speed and efficiency is calculated uh, in the way that, that we've talked about earlier, they end up effectively functioning like robots at work anyway. Two things. <laughs> I mean, great. Two things. First thing is, Stefan's Dark Futures sounds like some kind of club or like some kind of like holiday. Okay, Stephen's I don't want to be futures. the founder of that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the second thing is, in the, so in the second one, for example, the podcast host would be acting increasingly like a robot and it wouldn't be fun or funny. So I'll try that. <laughs> I'm going to try that until the end of this segment and see how it goes. Uh, Alice, best case? Uh, a couple of happier options, maybe. Um, we could all be working less, maybe three days, four days a week, and uh, we're doing really fulfilling jobs because we've given all of our crap work to robots. Um, alternatively, we could have you know, a fully automated future, but where there's a range of ownership models and we've all got a stake in, in that new technology. So that might be with um, cooperative models. It might be with the state, uh, the state actually having a stake in, in the kind of technological infrastructure that we have. Um, and we all kind of share in the, the profits that are created by this new fantastic technological utopia. Gee, that sounds great. Annie. <laughs> what do I get to choose whether I want the dark future or the good future yeah. I choose the good one that but... means you're not getting to join my club <laughs> um, so what's particularly good about um, the kind of solutions that Alice was talking about is I think they recognise that we don't just have a job for money so you didn't mention wages once and I think that's because it recognises that like a job is about so much more than just have, being able to put food on the table so it's about um, uh, a sense of uh, control over your life about how, sort of influence and decision making and that's where I think the different ownership models could be particularly exciting as a future avenue but how do we get there through through organising because we need, in, uh, ultimately what we need to exercise is some control over how uh, these developments take place and that will require um, a broad coalition of um, people and institutions who are able to work together to exert influence over, over what happens. Okay, right, I'm not a robot anymore because we can all agree robots are not as good as me at doing this. Organising, great, nice, good, good to end on. Thanks, Stefan. Stefan's Dark Futures next week. <laughs> So we've uh, we've been on a bit of a downer so far. Well, ups and downs, but maybe predominantly downs uh, in this episode. Um, so can you guys tell me, is there anything that you're looking forward to about advances in technology? Any particular aspects of your life that you would like uh, a robot to swoop in and take care of? I think it's really hard to efficiently stone a mango. Mm. <laughs> That's so It's really true. hard. You can do it. It's messy mm. and you often like, you miss a lot of the meat, mm. the That's flesh. why you've got to chew the stone. You've got to chew the stone. Yeah. With a glove so it doesn't well, I, slip out. I mean, I just, all I'm saying is it would be really good to have a machine help me do that. I'm pretty sure you can buy one in Wilco's. Really? Yeah. Alice, what's yours? Um, love. Oh, It's deep. complicated. It's difficult. <laughs> mm. Please, can we automate it? Oh, nice. 
<laughs> love it. Uh, you'll be able to automate love in Stefan Stark futures, don't you? Anna. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have massive equipment management issues. I just lose everything. Mm. So I would like either a robot to just follow me around everywhere, picking up my belongings and giving them back to me, or the ability to call everything I own so that I can just listen to it ring and then find it that way. Oh, these are good ones, guys. Stony mangoes, finding your shit, and love. <laughs> All things that we'd like to automate. Okay, so thanks, Alice, Stefan, and Annie, for joining me in the final episode of our current series. But we'll be back with more of the Weekly Economics podcast soon enough. If you've enjoyed this series, please do think about leaving a rating or a review for us. It only takes a minute and you can do it on most podcast apps. It really helps other people to discover us and our great bands. Thanks to everyone who's left a review so far. We really appreciate it. The Weekly Economics Podcast is produced by Hugh Jordan and James Shield and brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. Listener.